I must study politics and war that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. John Adams. You want to fight? We'll give you a fight. Welcome to Fightcast. All right. Hello and welcome, everybody. Uh, Fightcast listeners, I got a really fantastic episode for you today. Um, I am here with Daryl Cooper of the Martyr Made Podcast. Say hi, Daryl. What's up, everybody? Hey. Uh, um, so uh, as Daryl knows, um, I'm doing this uh, completely unlike any other episode I've done before. Uh, Daryl, uh, those who don't know the Martyr Made Podcast, um, I discovered it um, – kind of as an offshoot of listening to Daniele Bellelli's, uh History on Fire podcast, which is required listening, if you don't know that already. Um, and uh, you've done a series on the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict called uh, Fear and Loathing in the New Jerusalem. It's, I think it's like a, about a five-part series. I think there are five normal episodes, and then there's one episode where I kind of take a little detour and discuss you know, some of the social and political issues uh, in the background of the story, yeah. Excellent, excellent. And um, uh, so I kind of want to get this out of the way right now. If you haven't listened to that series, listeners, I just want you to s- hit the stop button on this. Just slam that stop button. Go listen to everything Daryl Cooper has ever done. And then I want you to come back here. This is it's very important. I, uh, I, it, the context is going to be needed. So take a second. Do that right now. This podcast <laughs> will be waiting for you. Take okay. 26. <laughs> go take 26 hours and uh, come yeah. on back. <laughs> No, and and 26 hours straight. Obviously, I mean that's. I mean, take an interstate drive. It'll 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 make it go by a lot faster. Um, anyway, uh, uh thank you very much for uh, agreeing to come on here. Um, this is, I think, something that uh, I I knew I wanted to talk to you as soon as I listened to your uh, series. Um, I want to kind of tell the story about what fighting says about us as people as a species and it seems like you've kind of gotten that hook way ahead of me and way better <laughs> and uh, uh it, it 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 definitely bears uh it definitely bears repeating that uh uh it's it's a lot more polished and professional than uh, than my setup goes but uh, uh i i kind of wanted to ask you like uh, what kind of got you into first of all podcasting and then second of all oh <laughs> why wh- Martyr Maid is not exactly a non-controversial title. That's that's not a neutral title to pick for a podcast. But uh, uh, what kind of got you into this whole endeavor? And specifically, was it was it the Arab-Israeli conflict that was kind of your in with this whole subject, or uh, did you uh, have this kind of uh, formulated out in the past? No, actually. So uh, all of my answers to those questions are very very uh, run of the mill and mundane. Actually, so uh, why I started doing a podcast is um, basically I got tired of waiting six months in between hardcore history episodes. And so I would always be complaining about it to my friends. And so one of my friends just said to me, well, you've been reading so much about, uh, the Israeli Palestinian conflict and you won't shut up to us about it. Why don't you just make a podcast about that? And so I said, okay, let's, let's go ahead and do it. And the reason that I was reading so much about that is because I was into a really, really attractive Arab girl at the time. And, uh, we had gotten into some, uh, conversations that turned into debates. And at the time, this is years ago, but, you know, I had the kind of the standard um, American 
vague idea of what was going on over there, in, you know, in Israel and Palestine. You know, I, I had more, I had, I had the level of knowledge of somebody that follows the news but hasn't gone through and studied the issue, right? So you have some idea of the characters and what's going on, and generally what had happened, kind of. But you know, so so I would uh, get into these discussions with her, and she was she's Palestinian specifically, and so we would um, start getting into these debates, and she would start bringing things up, and I'm like. I'm listening to her. I'm like, no, that's not true. That cannot be true. There's no way that that's true. And I have not heard about it. There's just no way. And so she gives me a couple books to read and I start reading these books and, you know, I'm seeing a lot of stuff in there that it just doesn't make it into the standard narrative. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of went through that, uh, that, that process that kids raised in a religious home go through, uh, when they first yeah. take a religious studies class in college or something, right? Where at first, it's like, like, what? There's other things? Yeah. At first it's <laughs> like, oh my God, everything that I thought about this is completely wrong. And so I'm going to go completely over to the other side and like start reading about all of these terrible things that the Zionists have done yeah. in Israel and blah, blah, blah. But then you start, you keep reading and you yeah. realize, well, no, it's not that simple either. <laughs> And so yeah, you start, oh. you start oscillating and swinging back and forth, and then you end up somewhere in the middle where, you know, this is something I think that's a huge problem in our culture right now, right, is if you find somebody that's read one book on a topic, ask them any question, and they will tell you with absolute apodictic certainty what the answer to it is. <laughs> Go find somebody who's read 50 books on that topic, and you have trouble getting a straight answer about anything out of them because they oh. understand that it's more – it's just – it's very difficult. You know, humans are very complicated. Yeah, I mean, and, it's almost as if more perspectives you add to your consideration of a given topic, the more complex it gets. Well, you that's know? that's exactly what happens. And um, you know, I actually had an experience that illustrates it pretty well. Is I started doing the first episode, um, and when I when I started, you know, the, the podcast took me a year and a half to do. I mean, it's a it's a pretty much an audio book. All, and, all six. Did you? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, sure. did you did you write them all out in advance, or oh. was it kind of like a, a an episode by episode thing? Well, I had um, I had an outline put out in advance, but I was still okay. doing research and studying as I was going, obviously over that year and a half, and so it just outlines just got thrown out again and again and again as I. You know, as I got to the point where you new just, information keeps yeah, coming in and everything where, where it doesn't just add things or, or sort of invalidate points that you were going to make or anything. It just changes the whole way you have to structure the story if, if you're really going to you know provide anybody an understanding of it. And so when I started the first episode, I think I'd read maybe six or eight books, you know, and this is just on the pre-1948 period, right? The, the, the mm -hmm. martyr made, or the fear and loathing in the New Jerusalem takes it from the beginning of the Zionist project after the pogroms in the Russian Empire in 1881 up to 1948, the founding of the State of Israel. Mm -hmm. And uh, you figure, okay, you know, this is, this is a, it's a big topic, but it's fairly contained. I mean, there, there, are, there are books out there that are 300 pages that'll take you from 1881 all the way up to the present day, right? So yeah. I'm going to get in here and, and, and do it. And when I first started, I'd read maybe six or eight books, and I'd read probably 100 or 200 articles and papers and other things like that. Um, mm -hmm. and, I, and I start doing the first episode. And by the time I, f I, I, I get to a point where the first couple episodes are outlined and I kind of feel pretty good about them and I'm ready to start the first episode, I go back to, to record the first episode. And by this point, I've read like 15, 20 books and three or four or 500 articles and papers and you know diaries and stuff. And yeah. I just I have to throw the entire first episode out because I realize that I'd read six or eight books on this topic, which is probably more than I've read on any topic that I'm not really, really, really into. And 
I realized I knew nothing when I read six or eight books and a hundred or 200 articles. I, I knew literally nothing. And it's not just that this kind of point was wrong or that was wrong. It's just that my entire understanding of what was going on in that first episode when I had outlined it was just completely wrong. And if yeah. I had put that out and anybody who had any idea what they were talking about, listening to it, <laughs> they would have laughed. And I, I laughed at it. And it was a really humbling experience because, you know, and I held on to those very early drafts even now. And I mean, at the end of it, I read over 80 books, uh, whole entire books. Um, I read yeah. an, parts of another I don't know, hundreds of books and well over a thousand papers and articles. And, and I mean, I've read almost anything that you can get your yeah. hands on. And I held on to those really early drafts because it was, it's just, it's very humbling. It gives you perspective. Something I had read six or eight books and a hundred articles maybe on, and I knew nothing about it. And then I think of all the times throughout my life where I would sit there and pontificate as long yeah. as anybody would listen to me because I had read one or two books on something or something like that. You know, oh my it, God. It, it puts, it puts things in perspective a little bit. So absolutely. I, I, I had a similar experience when I was studying, uh, Kenjitsu, uh, you know, the traditional Japanese swordsmanship, um, Back in Minnesota, I after I'd been in it for about like two years, I thought like I was hot shit, man. You know, I thought that I was the most knowledgeable person that could ever be talked to on this subject. And I look back at interviews that I gave to like friends who, you know, uh, we do this thing where we clean our swords and we uh, maintain our uh, our stuff and we do the nice beautiful knots on our scabbards and nice. everything like that. Yeah, and you know, as as kind of like an educational tool after our demonstrations that we do it, like we literally do them at anime conventions and uh, other kind of festivals and that kind of thing. Sure. And uh, I looked at I looked at an interview I did once of me after an anime convention where I uh, I was give I was answering a bunch of questions on the subject and then you know this is me of course now in it uh, for a few more years and I'm starting to learn like oh damn I really should have checked with somebody before I did that before I committed such you know uh, shallow one-dimensional answers to something to uh you know to forever internet memory yeah. um yeah but it, you know i'm probably gonna look back on it, i think it's a good experience to have that you know at least once though because it just it, oh, it, it yeah. puts things in perspective for you going forward oh but it sucks necessary, <laughs> you know um and you know i'm probably gonna look back on this on this podcast in a couple of years and i'm gonna have the exact same reaction it's gonna so be just, good for me yeah that means you've improved so absolutely so um uh Tangential to this topic, did you did you study history um, at all? Uh, did, yeah, th did that yeah, kind sure. of arouse your uh, uh, interest in this particular topic? Or did you find that um, uh, how how deeply did you go into uh, history studies when? Uh... Uh, so my primary um, my primary interests have always been, um, I guess you would say, religious studies and anthropology and mm -hmm. uh, the, the 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 period that really fascinates me is the transitional stage between, let's say, uh, in, in a very broad and not very precise sense, primitive societies to uh, the first, let's say, hieratic civilizations, right? The city-states yeah. you find. Like, something happened in between there from the time we were hunter-gatherers running around and the time that we're building pyramids and sacrificing human beings on the top of them and having yeah. these gigantic elaborated mythologies and, you know, something happened there. And it wasn't just that a bunch of people sort of happened to find themselves in a river valley in Mesopotamia and decided to start doing that. And that, that transition, how, how we went from kinship based hunter gathering uh, mm -hmm. You know, small scale band societies and tribes to 
uh, non-kinship based civilizations that, you know, anything I can get my hands on that, that helps me understand that better, whether it's psychology or anthropology, yeah. religious studies, those things. So obviously yeah, that I, entails a lot of historical study as well. Um, but it, it's, it's not exactly what specifically drove me to the Israeli Palestinian pro, uh, project. That was just a girl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let, let's not sell her short. It was not just a girl. <laughs> um, but you know, that, that, that is such a, the question alone of when, early humans developed the trust in other humans that they had, again, like you said, no kinship with. Um, how does it, how, how do they cross that bridge into trusting other humans, coming together in groups, putting themselves in a very vulnerable position, and building a civilization like that? That is, I, I completely agree, that is, <laughs> that's, right. well, and that the, question in and of itself is, is so You're on yeah. the right aspect of it, too, because it's, it's the vulnerability of it. You know, yeah. Because what happens when you know, take, for example, if you're if you're in a tribal society, a nomadic mm -hmm. tribal society living in tents in the Middle East or out, you know, on the Mongolian plains or something. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that you don't tend to see is you, you don't see tribes that become dominant, overarching uh, totalitarian empires. You might get tribute empires like the Mongols, where, you know, mm -hmm. they kind of say you guys are going to send us taxes and tribute and stuff, but you can keep your ruler and blah, blah, blah. We're not going to install Mongolian governors everywhere and stuff. Because... We're going to subcontract it. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. It's a tribute empire. And uh, the reason that happens, especially uh, – well, and they only usually do that to the settled societies, right? They're, they're predatory mm -hmm. upon the settled societies. But other tribes uh, – you know, if, if, if things get too threatening or, or if we lose like a big blood feud battle in a big way that, that now we're, our existence is threatened, we can always just move away a little bit. You know, you, you can expand. And if we can't handle you and defend ourselves, we can just sort of back off and move away. There's this fluidity to it that, that yeah, lowers I mean, the stakes. Yeah, big enough for everybody. Right. Lowers the stakes where once you start talking about having a state and a sedentary society on a, on a piece of land that's particularly valuable, right, like the Euphrates River Valley, the Indus River Valley, the Nile River yeah. Valley, now you've got people who are going to stay in this place. You know, take the Nile, for example. You've got desert to the east and west, you've got hostile peoples everywhere. You've got this little strip of, you know, very, very nice land that people want to live on. So they're less likely to leave. They're contained. But now, whoever controls that governmental structure, they rule everything. Yeah. And so the stakes are raised tremendously. And, you know, so, so yeah, the vulnerability of that. So if you're not the yeah. ones who are ruling it, you know, for your people, your clan or your tribe to, you know, sort of agree to be a part of of this structure. And usually it's, it's not an agreement. Usually it's enforced, right? <laughs> um, we agree that I've beaten you, well, <laughs> you know, but, but the, you know, the interesting thing is, is that something happens over time is, is what, you know, what you see is usually it's enforced at first through conquest and, and subjugation. But then mm -hmm. over time, if, you know, if certain things go right, uh, the people start to, uh, you know, they start to identify with their neighbors, even though they weren't necessarily part of their clan or something. And very often, this is something that, I mean, I mean most often, in fact, this is something that, uh, you know, the governmental authorities do absolutely consciously. We found this even, um, you know, when the British went down to, uh, for example, like around Lake Victoria, the biggest kingdom they found down there was uh, Buganda. It's in like mm -hmm. modern day Uganda. And, and they were they were sort of in this transition stage, right? They were definitely a kingdom. You couldn't just say that they were like a tribal chiefdom. They had a capital, they had a bureaucracy, they had regional governors and all this, but, you know, they still, this was a very recent 
thing for the most part, because the different parts of the kingdom were all still controlled by the clans that controlled them when they became a kingdom, right? And so what they would do is they would take like the eldest sons of all of the noble families and they would bestow on them the honor of of taking them to the capital city to be raised in court in the court of the king instead of being yeah. raised out in their provinces where they would be loyal to their own people they'd be loyal to mm. the state so these are very conscious things that they would you know that they would be doing to break down those local loyalties and to create a single people yeah. and it's it's not something that's easy to do and if you look at our modern highly developed you know societies today you realize that it's something that can break down when you know when the overarching identity structure becomes less compelling to people for any mm-hmm. variety of reasons than their local identity structures, right? Where yeah. if, you know, if you're an African-American in the United States and you look around and you think that, you know what, this society, this America uh, that I'm supposed to be identifying with, and this is just an example, that I don't really feel like at home here. I don't feel like this is working for me or, or whatever yeah. it is. And so, you know what, I think I do maybe kind of identify with my fellow black Americans more than I do with the United States of America. And that can happen and it can happen on a mass level. And, you know, on on the extreme side, you can end up like Yugoslavia, right? That's a failed national identity project. And all of the local identities took over again. And those people start killing each other. And and, and so, you know, Arnold Toynbee has this saying that the British historian Arnold Toynbee has this saying that time is always on the side of the barbarian. And, you know, you can take that just as the barbarian at the gates, but what is a barbarian? Well, the barbarian is, is the part of us that is still, uh, you know, that, that, that still attaches itself to the, to the more real, the more local kinship structures and, you know, clan structures and things like that. The things that are natural to us, right? Which are your family, your blood, your soil. And that's always sleeping in there. And to the extent that the larger sort of symbolic identity projects that we managed to cobble together to, to, allow non-kin to identify with one another as brothers, at least relative to those people over there, yeah. uh, as those start to lose their grip, the barbarian reasserts itself. Yeah. That's something we've got to be very uh, cognizant of, I think. So, a- a- Absolutely. Do, do you think it has to do with, um, cause I, as, as a, somebody in a theater background and, you know, because this entire podcast is kind of geared toward it, do you think that it has to do with the stories that people tell themselves? You know, uh, it's not no, ideally, you know, in, in this, in this unite, in these United States, ideally we want to tell the story that we are all a part of this same extended family of Americans, but at the same time, we want to take pride in our individual kind of uh, origins, and every, we want to take we, we want to take pride in the fact that everybody came from a whole lot of different places, and keep that and have that over here in, in in this part of the box. But in the other part of the box, we want to have this overarching identity as Americans, and you know we I, we believe in these same particular values and. I suppose. Do you think it's do you think it's a constant struggle of which story becomes the dominant narrative, the story of family and kinship, and you know that small micro scale, or this idea that okay, we all share these same values, and that makes us capital A Americans. You know, on, on the other hand, I think that the stories we tell ourselves are almost literally everything. Um, yeah. That you know, if you take like a very uh, small scale very like very primitive um uh let's say you know one of the one of the really primitive tribes from papua new guinea or from the uh australian outback when we contacted them that are just they're still in the stone age they live in not even tribes they live in 
you know, loose extended family band societies and they're scavengers yeah. and hunters of small game, very, very primitive people. And, um, what, one of the things that you notice right off the bat with them is that you, you almost can't really call them religious in any kind of a traditional sense. Like they have, mm. they have sort of ideas that we would think of as spiritual religious ideas in terms or of shamanistic like, kind of something. Yeah. Like they'll have ideas where, you know, how did this river get here? Well, you know, mm. the great, the, the, you know, the, the great crow carved his beak in, into the, you know, landscape and, and then, you know, took a leak in there and then that's where the river came <laughs> from. That sounds like a religious idea to us, but that's just a story that they told themselves about how the river got there. What, what you don't find is any type of common mythological structure that like, you know, where, where everybody is sharing the, in the same story in a lot of ways. They, they have things that relate to their practical environment, how certain practices happen to, have, you know, have evolved. Like, why do we make baskets the way we do? When, mm -hmm. when they say that, you know, the great ancestor first made the first basket in the following manner, uh, that's, that's a means of storing cultural information for them about how to make baskets, right? Because there are only 40 of them wandering around in the desert and it, they, yeah. can, they can forget that. Like it's very Absolutely. possible to forget. And so this, this may seem like a non sequitur, but I watched a couple of nights ago, I watched Moana on Netflix and <laughs> it is, it, it perfectly illustrates that exact thing. You know, people tell themselves, they, it, it, it goes step by step into like, okay, we're going to tell this story. Maui dragged the, uh, islands out of the ocean and you know he he gave us thunder and lightning and you know all, all these other things and you know then then he's living in exile and he's somewhere but he may come back one day sure it's it, it's a perfect example of what you're talking about and, and at, the, at the very small level where it's just this sort of extended family of 30 or 40 individuals right um they they don't really have to put together a common mythological structure because because they are already a social unit. They're a natural social unit. They're they're in the same form of social unit that they would have been in before, uh, you know, they woke up into human consciousness. You know, they're 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 very similar social unit to what you would find among gorillas or other great apes or something. It's it's just the extended family, and that holds together on its own. Mm -hmm. But if you want to bring several unrelated extended families together and have them not only be able to not kill each other, but to feel yeah. uh, have a sense of common fellow feeling with one another that if 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 you know this guy over here dies, that that hurts me as if somebody in my family was dying. You know, it's it's a there are concentric rings of concern. It's not going to be the same as my father dying or my brother dying, but I care. Uh, in, in a way that, you know, shows that I identify with this person, you know, and, and that we are reaching toward common goals for our common people. Now you've got to have a story that goes along with that, because it's just it's the only way, as far as I can tell, to over time construct, uh, you know, a, a, an identity structure that includes everybody and supersedes and transcends the more local ones. It's it's something that is, you know, like you said, the vulnerability aspect of it is tremendous because, yeah. you know, who gets to tell that story? Who gets to make, you know, to make the decisions about how it goes together? And so when you look in things like, you know, this is why it drives me crazy when I talk to um, people who are, are really hardcore on the atheist end who like if you don't <laughs> like if people don't believe in God, that's totally fine. But what blows yeah. my mind is how people can find something like the Bible completely irrelevant and un uninteresting. Like, oh, agreed, agreed, completely. Like, I mean, as somebody on the atheist end of things, I think that it's very important that, like, that that we. I don't want the Bible to go away. I want people to study because um, it's a wonderful window into the time. And yeah. it, as a historical document, it is bar none. Um, a, it, it's a it's a eye through the keyhole into people's values and you know uh, 
and like I keep saying, you know, the 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 narratives that people tell themselves. We want to keep these narratives. We don't want to let them go away. Well, take, you know, of course. Oh yeah, sorry. go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, it's just that I I think that. I don't know. As, like I said, I gotta give a little bit of defense to people on the hardcore atheist end of things, but uh, well, again, yeah. I want to be clear. I'm not talking about belief in any of it. What I'm talking about is like okay. you've got a document here that's thousands of years old. That is, it's one of the best anthropological documents on on how a people understood itself to have been created out of just sort of disparate tribes, right? So you have these the the Hebrew, the Jewish people. Who, you know, maybe they came out of Egypt, maybe they didn't, who knows, but the point is that they were not a people yet. That's what, that's their starting point. And so yeah. then you have this story of how these 12 tribes, uh, all came together into a kingdom ruled by this guy named David, right? Well, mm -hmm. there's everything you can think of is in that story. Like they, you know, right at the beginning, like they're, just 12 tribes who are kind of separate from each other. They don't necessarily all trust each other. And then they, at first they installed judges, which are just basically like the elders of each tribe who are going to kind of come together and make decisions for the overall collective. But then mm -hmm. they find themselves surrounded by enemies and those enemies have Kings and stuff. So they can actually raise armies and do these things. And so the people say, well, we want a King. And then yeah. you have Samuel coming along and giving this big speech about how, like, are you guys sure you want a King? Because there are some downsides to this. You know, this guy's going to yeah. put you, to work he's going to take yeah, your sons and send them to war and literally he's going to take your asses and put them to work yeah, that was one of my favorite yeah, parts yeah. of that episode and so you've got like an actual and, and you know it's mythological but that's fine but like you have a, a cultural document here that is yeah. you know that people's memory of going through the process that i'm talking about of you know going from essentially nomadic raiding bandits you know just sort of rolling around as nomads into being a mm -hmm. kingdom and what how did they do that and what were the hitches that they found there's a lot of there's a lot of information in there you a know absolutely and you know we can speak to whether it actually happened or not all day long and trust me i love to listen to those podcasts too um but li like you said this document has value in and of itself just because we see the strength of that narrative played out over time this yeah. narrative that brought these 12 tribes together that gives these people an a story a narrative an identity um that has stood the test of time and yeah. you cannot say that for all the same it's you know exactly cultural right. narrative exactly right i mean like if you really say to yourself today like why after these all these thousands of years why are there still jews especially when 2000 years ago they got run out of their homeland and they were diaspora nomads for 2,000 years, and yet somehow... Benjamin Disraeli, Benjamin Disraeli even used that as a proof of God's existence. He's like, oh, of course there's a God. Look at the Jews. Well, They're still here. Right, so what I would say is that it's a proof of the power of, of myth and, and narrative and story. Right? Yes, they yes. survived because they did not forget their story. I mean, you look at modern Jews, uh, like Ashkenazi Jews, which are the Eastern European Jews that were the, you know, the primary uh, drivers of Zionism, for example. They came from the Russian Empire, Poland, that whole area. Yeah. They're, you know, if you do genetic tests on them, and most of them are between like 50, 55, 60% Middle Eastern blood, right? So there's tons of European blood. That's why they look very different from, you know, uh, Middle Eastern Jews, for example. They're, they're like 50 to 60% Middle Eastern, traditional Middle Eastern DNA, and yet they're fully Jewish. Why? Because they didn't forget their story. You know, mm -hmm. and, and that held them together for thousands of years through everything you could think of to the point that when the yeah. time was right, they were actually able thousands of years later to go back to that place and yeah. reestablish themselves. I mean, that's it's kind of inspiring. And even in a even to a secular person, it's a very inspiring kind of story. Well, and the thing is, like, this is this is where secularism has uh, sort of it, it just it. 
You know, I don't remember who it was. There was some saying sometime, uh, maybe it was in Will Durant's history of civilization or something, but he, he said something along the lines of, um, and he, he was a secular socialist guy. I mean, he wasn't yeah. any religious guy or anything, but he said that philosophers and, and, and skeptics and things like that have always failed uh, to replace the, you know, to, 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 to replace the religions that they get rid of with anything emotionally meaningful or convincing for the people, you know, who, who yeah. they take those things from. And, yeah. and I think that we, uh, we, we put away, you know, we put away religious narratives and we think that, uh, it, well, we, and we, 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 what we end up doing is just putting aside narratives altogether. And so what happens is people, <laughs> you know, start, people become vulnerable to anybody who's got a compelling story to tell communism, fascism, capitalism, this, that, any cult, you know, anything. I mean, look at the 1960s. The 1960s were a time where our social narrative just completely came apart. Our shared oh, yeah. social narrative came apart. And what do you see? You see this gigantic proliferation of cults and Jim Jones and Charles Manson and all of these, you know, various ethnic nationalist movements and all of these things proliferating because, you know, people, you, people don't wander through the world without having a story that they feel that they are participating in. And if you get rid of the one they've got, they will go find another one. It's just a matter of what that story is going to be and who's going to be providing it, you know? Absolutely. I mean, to, to tie it all into today now, you know, I think that anybody, no matter which side of the political divide you fall on, we can all agree that right now this is one of those times where we're the, the narratives are jockeying for position for which is going to be the dominant narrative that comes out on top. Yeah, and it's something that worries me quite a bit, not just for our own society, but globally, because, you know, this is the first time in world history um, where, uh, I mean, I think most people at, at this point, pending some gigantic catastrophe that none of us can even, you know, probably be 50-50 if any of us live through it, uh, pending something <laughs> disastrous like that, you know, most of us can look into the future and maybe it'll be you know, a hundred years from now, maybe who knows how long it'll be. But I think we can all see uh, a period coming where there's basically one global monoculture and there might be various flavors of it here and there, but there's going to be a dominant global culture. And, um, you know, and and it's well, and so, but the question becomes, well, okay, but who gets to decide what that's going to be? And and when I look at like the reaction of the Islamic world right now to globalization from the West, I totally understand it. And it's, you know, it's because it, it's it's a question right now of, I, I mean, look, look, look at uh, as the West spread throughout the world, look at South America, North America, those cultures are gone, you know, and even when you go yeah. over to places that have strong civilizations and great histories like China, China's wearing Western clothes, they're learning English, like, you know, I mean, China's a, they've got a strong center, we're not going to get rid of China, but it's entirely possible that, um, you know, uh, just western culture in general that there that china eventually becomes sort of a an eastern flavor of the global western monoculture and huh. if people see something like that coming and, and and everything that's happening now is sort of you know working to settle the question of whose culture is going to prevail and be that you know that that monoculture that may yeah. you know that that may go on for a thousand years for all we know i mean just once so you get I, to that point so yeah, no, I, guess, I, guess, I guess the question is: is the is the future going to be like the Expanse, or is it going to be more like um, uh, uh, Star Trek, or is it going to be more like uh, Firefly? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, um, I think that um, you know, there's history is always uh, history always has 
maybe this is like, you know, you could relate this to like the yin yang symbol or something like that, but history has yeah. always got two poles to it. There's always something trying to, uh, pull people apart. And I don't even mean that in a bad way. I mean that people first and foremost care about their nuclear families. Uh, beyond that, they care about their extended families. Beyond that, they care, you know, there's concentric yeah. rings of identification that go out. And you can always... count on humans to fall back on that dynamic. Right. And so, and, and they will fall back on it to the extent that the alternative stories that allow them to transcend it become less compelling. You know, that, yeah. that's how it is. And it's something that always has to be evolving. This is something that conservatives get completely wrong consistently is, uh, you know, attachment to tradition is great. I'm a person who's, you know, got a great attachment to my historical roots and traditions and things. But yeah. the world is always changing. You know, it's like it's like when you're a child, right? You're two years old. And uh, you've got to get past the stage in your life where you throw temper tantrums and you do all these various things. Why do you have to do that? Well, because your body's growing and eventually you're going to be eight and people are going to be treating you differently because you're an eight year old and you just have to get past that. You've got to change because your body is not waiting for you. Well, civilization or and our, rather our, the environment that we're in and, you know, the size of your populations and the configuration of your society, all these things are changing all the time. And your story has got to be able to adapt itself, you know, to those changing conditions. Otherwise, you know, well, this is what happens. I mean, when you talk about, like, why do revolutions happen? A revolution is, uh, you know, there are, probably a, there, there are probably healthy revolutions and unhealthy ones. But it's when uh, the underlying conditions of a society have changed. But the story that we're all playing along with and living out has not changed. And so there, you get this tension between, let's say, the institutions of your society and the morals and values and things like that of your society, right? And, exactly. and a healthy yeah. revolution is one where, uh, you know, the, the morals and values of your society have gotten out ahead of the institutions. And so the institutions are radically updated to match up with the, you know, the morals and the mores of your of your people. Uh, the, the the bad version is probably like the Bolshevik or French Revolution version where, mm -hmm. you know, uh, maybe a certain group of people, the mores and values are out ahead. And, you know, I mean, if you look at like the French Revolution, uh, they're pretty moderate Democrats in a lot of ways. They were ahead of their time. I mean, they were seeing yeah. in the future where things were going. But unfortunately, yeah. they weren't just trying to update the institutions. They were trying to update the people. You know, they said that and, and that is what, that's what fascinates me about revolutions is how do people fall off the reasonable train? You know, <laughs> it's you know, I mean, it's uh, it's very hard, I think, um, to differentiate between like what you know what we call like the bad kind of revolutionary fervor and religious fanaticism. I mean, I think they probably play mm -hmm. on all the same circuits in the brain. They probably activate all the same things. I think they're very, very. I mean, there's look, there's a reason Nietzsche saw the 20th century coming. You know, um, he, he talks mm -hmm. about the death of God and, you know, uh, you see uh, hipsters wear it on T-shirts and stuff like it was a great celebration by the nihilist. <laughs> teacher, but he, it wasn't. I mean, I mean, yeah, he was ways, bemoaning this. Yeah. It, well, I mean, look, he, he uh, it's you know, it's a little more complicated than that. I mean, he did think that there were yeah. certain things that needed to be overcome. But at the same time, he said, look, you think this is going to go well in the short term you're just lying to yourself that's just not how it works you know people don't lose their overarching social narrative that gives them all a place in the cosmos and justifies their suffering you don't just take that away and they're just going to be like oh cool i guess i'll go to the you know go to the amusement park now that's just not how it works <laughs> 
Exactly. Um, I remember a, a bit of an anecdote from my philosophy class I had at Cornish where uh, apparently one of the things that really disturbed Nietzsche, he's going about saying, you know, God is dead, God is dead. And, and, and the, one of the things that uh, disturbs him is people's apparent apathy to it, you know, as if. Right. As if he's not, as if he's not stumbled upon anything new. They're like, oh, finally, you've caught up with the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because in that scene in the gay science where the madman takes his lantern and goes out saying, you know, God is dead, and, and we've, it is we who have murdered him. He's died under our knives. It's interesting because he uh, he goes out into the marketplace to say that. Yeah. And yeah. it is the marketplace in a lot of ways that breaks these things down. You know, I mean, when uh, I think uh, and I'm, you know, look, I'm a capitalist. I've, I've seen non-capitalist societies and how all that stuff turns out. But yeah. there is a corrosive element to it where, you know, like the reason our modern Western culture, capitalist you know, democracy and everything is, is so overwhelmingly powerful culturally yeah. is because uh you know, it just it, it has a way of taking whatever it is that you would typically use to sort of um, defend your own culture and prop it up and, and justify it. And we'll take mm -hmm. that and put it into a pretty package and sell it to you. And it's um, <laughs> it's an amazing thing that we're able to do. And, yeah. um, you know, I mean, it's it, it's it's bound to create uh, some some blowback from societies that look. I mean, is there anybody that is not being completely uh, you know, if you're being completely honest with yourself, you know that if capitalism and democracy and all of the things that we think are just completely natural, if all of those things go into the Middle East, then their society is finished. We know it and they know it. Now, it might be, a, you know, it might be a better society. That's fine. But if you're attached to your traditional society then you you have to fight back against that yeah. you know and it, it's the age old question of cultures you know what do you take with you what do you leave behind that is a great way to formulate it yes yes what are you going to bequeath to the future you know yeah. one of my favorite books and my favorite authors is the decline of the west by oswald spengler and oh. uh you know he was a he's a traditionalist german thinker from he wrote this during and, and published right after the first world war and uh he kind of surveys um, you know, a bunch of the major civilizations and culture spheres throughout history and uh, kind of maps out how they're born out of this, um, you know, this sort of feudal kind of primordial feudal system where nobody's really literate or writing anything down. It's this very, you know, uh, very tough warlike culture, you know, warriors and, and uh, aristocracy and peasantry and all these things and how that evolves then into something that you can call a culture, right? So that you don't yeah. just have Germanic peoples running around Europe. Now you've actually got something that you can absolutely recognize as European Christian Gothic culture and you know what it yeah. is. And it starts giving birth to all of these, these, these culture forms that have never existed in the history of the world, right? You start giving birth to classical music and, and just all of these things that never existed that are born out of that culture soul. And then what happens when these things start to calcify, start to stiffen up, stop giving rise to all of these just you know, rampant creation of completely new and novel culture forms and then begin to decline and fall apart and then, you know, lose, eventually lose their sense of self-identity, which is the same thing as going out of existence, right? Yeah. And, uh, and that's, yeah, that's one of the things he talks about, so. Yeah. So uh, you, you served me up that segue on a silver platter, so I'm going to take that and run with it. Um, one of the things I would, I, I really, one of the questions I wanted to ask you um, is what defines a warrior culture for you? Well, um, I guess there are probably two different kinds of – well, uh, this is completely off the top of my head. So 
Yeah. You know, you have uh, you have first of all, pretty much all tribal cultures are warrior cultures, right? Yeah. Just by necessity, for the most part. I mean, it's a it's a tough life. They're, they they live by raiding and hunting, and obviously hunting and warfare are very tightly you know related to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so you've got that. But then you've got other things that we see, like Japan. Uh, during you know the, the the shogunate before feudal Japan, uh, yep. the Spartans. Um, you could even say uh, Europe for for a time, uh, you know, until it was sort of uh, bred out of us a little bit. Um, and, and I think maybe yeah, maybe you want to. The talk Middle Ages also. are very yeah. The, the Middle Ages are so fascinating to us. I think for that exact reason is that it was that kind of the the the, the high water mark of the Western warrior culture before it gave way to soldier culture. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Right. And, and the rule I think through history is that. Um, a warrior is superior to a soldier, but a soldier culture always beats a warrior culture over time. Yeah, and, I see. Yeah, you know, and and it's something that I, you know, I think that one of the things, another thing that we're suffering to today is that our our modern society is perfect as it is 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 for many of us it's just it's a little bit too perfect. It's so overcoded and so predictable and so, uh, you know, it's it's so safe that. We almost like look at who our heroes are when you look in literature and movies and things. They're basically barbarians who have busted loose in the in ten. You know, they're people who have gotten loose in the middle, and, and they're they're rule breakers. They're people who are willing to you know who who understand when it's maybe the right time to break a rule. But I mean, there's even when we when we watch something like uh, the Batman movies, like everybody's mm-hmm. fascinated with the Joker and Batman's cool and stuff. But but yeah. everybody likes the Joker and Bane and whatever more. And because, you know, what civilization is, is it's a process of, it, it is a, it is a, we talk about the patriarchy and all that, but you really think about what civilization is, is it's a process of domesticating men. That's really what it is. I mean, if you look at Europe, for example, I mean, look at the Vikings and Northern, I mean, these, these people were absolute savages. And there were a million beautiful things about their culture. I love Norse culture, and I've got roots, yeah. you know, in that culture. So, so I definitely. <laughs> my, my girlfriend's heavily Norse. Hi, Kirsten. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it's this, it's this beautiful thing in a lot of ways. But at the same time, I mean, you have to, we also have to realize, like, what you want, like, a warrior culture today. The closest thing we've got is ISIS. And if anybody really thinks, interesting. If anybody thinks that that's going too far, go read about the Vikings. I mean, these were oh. brutal, brutal people. And uh, even even this is you know the Japanese have always been incredibly fascinating to me because they are yeah. about the most civilized, uh, just the, the combination between their their manners and level of unmistakable high civilization, and yet. Uh, yeah. the the role that violence played in their society was absolutely. I, I think that's something that's iconic of that Japanese um, attitude. That is the very like the peak civilized violence. I guess you know is during the samurai era they had this uh, concept called kiristegomen. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's the idea that uh, a samurai can cut the head off of somebody who's lower than him on the social rank. And as long as he gives a good enough convincing enough reason why he did it afterwards, like, oh, he offended me with his stench or something, I I don't know. But as long as you can give a justification for why this lower person gave such an offense that you had to cut their head off right there in the middle of the street, um, then you're fine. You know, (laughs) it's it's, it's this idea that, like, horrendous violence can be excused, but – if you follow the cultural, you know, if you follow the, the, the post we've set out, if you, if you color within the lines of this culture, then, you know, it's, it's permitted. Right, that's, well, that's exactly right. I mean, you look at, 
you know, any culture, it's a question of what the rules are and uh, whether or not, you know, there's always consequences for breaking them. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we had, if you go back in earlier cultures that didn't have the means of social control that we have today through propaganda, say, or through the, you know, the way we have kind of generalized full employment and debt obligations, just all the different things that kind of the way we socialize one another, um, yeah. you know, you had much looser control, for example, like if you think of what, uh, like the, the American government today, the American government is more or less synonymous with the territory of the, or, you know, contiguous with the, uh, territory of the United States, right? If you yeah. live in the mountains of Montana and you decide you're going to rebel against the government. And so you, uh, refuse to pay your tickets to the local sheriff's office or whatever, and the sheriff comes to collect and you just kill him. Well, eventually the state police are going to come. And if you kill mm. all them, because you and your friends are all ex-Navy SEALs and all that, yeah. well, that's fine, because eventually the National Guard's going to come. And eventually, if we have to, we will go to civil war to put down this insurrection. We don't care if you live on the tippy tip 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 yeah. of the Aleutian Islands of Alaska. That is how it'll work. Well, that's not how it worked throughout history for the most part. You know, you have maybe a city that is the capital city where government power, state power kind of emanates outward from there, and it fades off as you move away, right? And if mm -hmm. you if you look in up uh, you know like really uh, old traditional uh, I'm still talking about civilizations but like look at like the Egyptians the Mesopotamians the uh, the Indians of the, uh, the uh, Ganges River Valley those civilizations where you know if you want to be out in the desert like you know this is this has been the case through in the Middle East throughout history where you've got these little areas that are pretty fertile you know you've got river valleys you've got oases and stuff and those are kind of centers of control that people can you know exercise from but if you're on the desert, like we can't keep a garrison of soldiers out there. Um, it's very expensive and, and, and difficult to go out chasing you around the desert. Yeah, the logistics of the water alone. Yeah, is... and, and, and so the people who didn't want to live that way, you know, who didn't want to live in a bureaucratic society where, you know, they had jobs instead of just they were just a, you know, a warrior and a part of the tribe, whatever. They had somewhere to go. One of the things that we're running into now in the world today is that you no longer have anywhere to go. If you don't want to live this way where you're going to a nine to five and like this is one of the things that absolutely blew me away. You want to talk about a con you know, conflict between a warrior culture and, and, and a non-warrior culture. You know, we went into Afghanistan. Mm. These people are, you know, still very much a warrior culture. I mean, they're, you know, especially when you get up into the into the mountains in Waziristan, all that area. Like we're going out there and one of the things that 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 we've never been able to get through our heads is that there are people in the world that do not want this life that we are offering them. Why? Like for, it doesn't, yeah. for, for a lot of us, I think it, it, this, there's an easy answer to this question, but I think maybe for somebody like you who makes a podcast about this kind of stuff and is a little bit more in touch with that warrior mentality. And for somebody like me, like I can completely understand why a guy who's 22 years old who lives with his with his people and his tribal alliance in Waziristan and has this? I mean, he's got a, a, a traditional life, and he's a warrior. He's a farmer. He's responsible yeah. to his people. Why he would not want to uh, move yeah. to Kabul and work in a call center for six dollars yeah. an hour? Well, no, I mean, of yeah, course. Yeah. How how hard is that to understand? But we don't understand it today. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, you can say what you will about the movie Avatar, but like. 
I, I think one of the one of the lines that uh, that encapsulated it perfectly is like, well, w- what do we have that these people want? Like jeans, light beer, you yeah. know? <laughs> like yeah. what what are we actually offering these people? And 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 it's and very interesting. You bring up the the example of Afghanistan because Afghanistan seems to me a country that does not want to be a country. Exactly I mean, right. it's yeah. it's. You have this, okay, we're gonna draw a line on the map, and this is Afghanistan now, and you're all Afghans, and they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, what is an Afghan, (laughs) exactly. I mean, yeah, well, and and you mentioned Avatar. We've always had a fascination with those kind of stories, right? Uh, Yeah. um, Dances with Wolves, and. Last Samurai. Yeah, Last Samurai, all the old stories of uh, colonials that would go out and live with the tribes and things like that. And, (laughs) and, and, and what we, what we're able to do is when those ones, when, when they're already gone, right? So we've already won that battle. Um, we always idealize the, those people, and we sort of reflect on our own behavior in their conquest, right? But there's a different type of story. That's, I mean, it's the same story. It's the same. It's the same idea, but it's it, it takes place in the modern day, and it's these ones where, what's an example? Uh, think of some. Here you go. Think of something like Point Break, right? Point Break. You've got this. Have you seen Point Break? I, 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 a long time ago, I think. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, it's this group of, uh, bank robbing surfers, right? Led by, uh, Patrick Swayze, who, um, you know, every year they, uh, come down to Los Angeles to rob some banks in the summer and then they, uh, go off around the world and surf and that's their lifestyle. Well, that's a nomadic raiding lifestyle. That's what that is. And, uh, then Keanu Reeves, who's this new recruit with the FBI. So he's the representative of the system, the state and all that. He's got, he's supposed to go out and he learns to surf and he goes out and, basically runs with these guys and becomes a part of their group as he's undercover to like try and catch them. Right. And in those stories, uh, they're all, they're always also portrayed sympathetically in a way where the guy who's part of the uh, civilization, he starts to see why people would want to, but they always have to lose in those stories. The bad guys yeah. have to lose in those stories. It's like, uh, but in the ones where it's earlier, because civilization has to triumph. Right. Yeah. And in the in the in the in the ones that take place, kind of you know, in the past or, or something like that, somebody we've already conquered, we can kind of idealize it a little more. And in the ones, you know, basically any story that you can think of, where there's a cop who has to go undercover with Group X, and he kind of starts to see, you know, why people would be this way. But they they have to lose though, because there's that sleeping fear that, you know, I mean. <laughs> I, I think that there is a there's a very large part of any healthy male in society that feels like a caged animal. And the the, the, the task of not going to deny that or confirm it, <laughs> well, the task of a civilized society. And this is the this is the end of your civilization. If if you fail to do this is to tell those men stories that allow them to structure and, uh, you know, give uh, structure and manifest that violent energy that they feel in a way that actually is 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 favorable to the society rather than tears it apart. Interesting. It, keeping with Keanu Reeves here, just because, um, have you seen the John Wick movies? I saw the first one. I haven't seen the second one. Okay. The, the first one's a good enough example because uh, that in and of itself is a great kind of conceptual idea of what a modern warrior culture could look like because as as much as we hear the army recruiting ads and they're like you know be a part of our warrior culture they use the word warrior a lot i find yeah. and that's probably that's very much by design but as much as they try it's never going to be quite a warrior culture as much as you know you have this you know you're i have a lot of friends who are marines they have you know you have this marine ethos as much as you have that it's not quite a warrior culture because sure. you're still you know you're still beholden to this uh 
to this command structure and this framework, and it's very it's it's antithetical to a warrior culture in a way. But in the John Wick movie, you see um, how like okay, within this hotel, there's where only the world's best trained killers go. Right. Um, we're all we all have this code of conduct, and we all have this sort of professional courtesy towards one another. We could be trying to kill each other moments away outside the hotel, but the second we get inside the hotel, where we're um, where we're a part of this culture again, where we're a part of this warrior's yes. world, yeah. then the rules kick in and the limitations kick in, and you're like, okay, no, this is what sets us apart from you know thugs and you know uh, people who are lower classes of killer than we are we, we we respect one another's prowess and their skills and their individuality which is a big part of warrior culture the rules it, are interpersonal like in yes. other words like um what you find in any society is that laws will pro- proliferate to the extent that custom loses its hold on people. Yeah. Right? You have laws and, and then you have code. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, code or custom, whatever you want. And uh, and warrior cultures have codes and customs. In other words, authority um, and legitimacy is not based on your place in a bureaucracy or, or whatever. It's interpersonal. It's because you are you know, you have earned respect or maybe maybe you're just a, a, the son of a man who has great respect, but that's still an interpersonal, you know, sort of legitimacy that exists there. And to the extent that that hardens and calcifies into a bureaucratic hierarchy, you know, again, I mean, anybody who <laughs> like modern Sweden is probably a much friendlier place to live for everybody except the fiercest warriors and maybe even them than it yeah. was in, Nor- you know, in Viking times. Uh, History has a way of inflicting some deep irony. <laughs> right, yeah. And, and the, you know, the, the real question, and this is, I think, why places like uh, feudal Japan and uh, maybe especially them for me, but um, but all, uh, the Middle Ages in Europe, too, where they fascinated so much is because um, it's this it, it's this attempt by a culture that uh, that is becoming a bureaucratic uh, state, you know, with. Mm-hmm. Where 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 the the possibilities of life are closing down a little bit and you know becoming a little more orderly and predictable, which again like having your life be predictable is a, is great when you're in the middle of a civil war. It probably sounds yeah. like heaven, right? Um, you know, most of the time, like you know, when you get into conversations with people today, modern United States, who talk about we need a revolution or something like that, it's like get get out of here, man. Like I, I don't I, you don't even go to you the say gym. you want a revolution, yeah, you don't even go to the gym, dude. Like what are you talking about? Like you've never <laughs> shot a gun. Like, I mean, th- that type of social breakdown is something that yeah. uh, you better have something to fall back on, and that's something. By the way, you, you know, you want to talk about how you get uh, how you get real dark chaos right is when um like our civil war first civil war was not a civil war we broke into two states and then we had a normal war with armies that met each other and all that a civil war is like what you had in sarajevo what you had in beirut where you might have to shoot your neighbor and there's no front line it's everywhere and so going to the store to get food becomes extremely problematic because you don't know who's going to meet you on the way there. You don't know who's selling it to you. If that, I mean, that is absolute yeah. nightmare. That is as big of a nightmare as it, you know. The Arabs actually have an old saying that says a thousand years of tyranny is preferable to a day of anarchy. And huh. only people who have never lived in true anarchy like that, where you don't know who your neighbors are, uh, could think that that's not true. It is preferable. And and we mm-hmm. made that choice as a species. We went from you know, a place where we said, look, we need some more predictability and we're willing to actually eat a little bit of oppression, you know, at some point to, yeah, to, yeah. to get some of it. 
Yeah, as much as we go on about freedom as Americans, we know that we're we're by a degree not free. You know, and that's completely fine. That's like you said, that's a, that's a sacrifice that you make when you join this larger culture. I submit my freedom to burn my neighbor's house down when we have a dispute. Yes. You know, uh, so that everybody can actually live together and all that yeah, kind of thing. Right. Nobody burns my house down, and we all agree to burn down the house of anybody that breaks that rule. Right. So that's yes. the basis of law. And uh, you know, I mean, it's something that um, I, I think that the task of our society right now is coming up with a way uh, to, you know, I mean, right now, all we're doing, instead of coming up with a story that actually allows men, and I say men, it is just, it's primarily men. I mean, it just is. Yeah. Like, there are women out there who have this bug yeah. as well, but it's primarily a male, you know, problem in a way. I would say in civilization, it is a problem. Um but uh, we've got to come up with stories that allow, you know, that allow people to go out and express this this energy in some way. And right yeah. now, instead of doing that, we're just giving all of our kids Adderall and or, you know, Ritalin and just we're doing everything but that. We're just purely trying to domesticate and tamp down and push down that energy. And then what do you expect? Of course, you're going to have riots on the streets. Of course, you're going to have all these. You know, militant movements popping up everywhere. Like saying that's not going to work. It's just Absolutely. too much explosive energy there. Absolutely, and you know, this is. Um, I, I recently recorded a. I, re I recently recorded an episode that is going to be uh, probably uh, the next one out. Uh, I, I met with a group of friends and we discussed Nazi punching. You know, arguments for, arguments against, but more importantly, whether somebody was for or against. My purpose for that was to find out. Um, where is somebody is coming from who says, yes, if I see a Nazi on the street, I'm going to knock their fucking teeth out. Sure. You know, um, I think that it is, it, it, it's, it's interesting that a lot of the same people who are, you know, pro on that particular issue are also a lot of the people who I might have in past years classified as almost pacifists, you know, and it, it's interesting to see, um, People who otherwise I would not ever describe as aggressive yeah. uh, become aggressive for this one thing. But it's also like kind of like you said, when you lack the toolkit, when you lack the, the, the way to – when you lack the acceptance of that aggression and the need to um, you know, put a tap on it, it you, you enter this, okay, I'm willing to defend this particular ideal with violence, but I also lack the tools to do so. Uh, yeah, well, and I, also, you know, there, there's another aspect to that. And this is like I always come at these things um, from a like I always look at it from like a broader view. Right. I, I try yeah. to anyway, because I, you know, I've just read enough history and everything that, you know, I, I try to I try to look at things that are happening and, and and ask myself how a historian is going to view this 500 years from now in the grand oh, scheme all of the time. Yeah. And, you know, the thing that people who are talking about punching Nazis just aren't understanding is, well, it's just it's what we were just talking about, which is you want to punch a Nazi. OK, that's fine. We're, that, that is the equivalent of you have a problem with your neighbor and you're going to go burn his house down. Right. And so the question is, do you want to get back into that society where because, you know, now the Nazis punch back and now you punch back more. Now we're just just the whole yeah. edifice of law that we've had. Are you prepared to sacrifice that? to go back to vendettas and feuds and revenge and things like that. Cause that's where that leads. And, and I can completely see that. I think that the, yeah, I, I would, I would, my only quibble with that would be is that it's not necessarily just, you know, we're going to, you know, uh, gang up on our neighbors who uh, are, are different. It's, it's more, I think that the, 
the thing that's unique with the with the Nazi example is the factor of genocide that plays into that. You know, it's like when somebody uh, I can I can understand why somebody says, OK, that person genuinely believes in a genocidal ideology. Uh, I'm going to treat that person as hostile until you know sufficient evidence proves otherwise. Yeah. But um, again, the thing is, is, you know, we have all elected um or I guess been born into, but you know, every day we yeah. get up and, and follow the rules. We're we're, we're making yep. that choice to defer those decisions to uh, to the general pe- to the people, right? So, in other words, we have state institutions, we have police, we have all of yeah. these things to handle questions like that. And the minute we decide, and maybe it's a great excuse, it always starts off with a great excuse. The minute we yeah. decide uh, that we've got to take things into our own hands, that's a huge can of worms. You know, because it's it's something yeah. that it's a it's a regression. And, you know, the, the part of the problem is that when you get in, when you when you, when the state is no longer responsive and you feel like, uh, you know, just somebody's got to do something about this because the state yeah. is not doing its job or something. Yeah. Or in our situation where you end up uh, in, in a place where you've got people who are just living out different stories now. And they're not really one people in any meaningful sense of the word. Well, now, you know, you've got one government ruling over various factions that really don't think of themselves as part of the same group anymore at all. We're becoming more Afghanistan-like in that way. People think that's ridiculous and that that's silly. But, I mean, people who think that just haven't studied history. You know, I, I mentioned I, – I think I told a story in Martyr Made. I can't remember, but um, – that the the girl I mentioned earlier, the Palestinian girl, uh, I was out to lunch with her one. Uh, I was out to breakfast with her one time at a nice restaurant here in Los Angeles, and mm-hmm. you know it's one of those just sort of like uh, pleasant little outdoor patio restaurants, and it's a nice Sunday morning, and people are coming back from church or whatever, and we're having breakfast, and um, all of a sudden she just sort of I see her just sort of looking around, and it almost looks like she's in a daze or something, but she wasn't. She was just looking around, yeah. and I said, "What's up? What's what's on your mind?" and uh, she said, just this place, like, look at this place. And so I look around and she, she says, this place, this could never happen in my country. And I look around and, you know, you see black, white, Latino, Asian, straight, gay, blah, blah, everything you can think of in that place. And she's right. That would never happen in her country and not because of Islam. It would yeah. not happen because you wouldn't see these people who don't identify with one another all living together peacefully, eating you know nicely and laughing together in this restaurant just would not happen because that can only happen when those people think of them. They, you you trust your family, yeah. right? And so yeah. you uh, want to trust other people. You have to identify with them on some level, or you have to just fully understand their interests and fears and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I yeah. mean, and, and so being able to extend your sense of kinship out to people that you're not technically related to i mean that is the greatest human achievement ever i mean if we have if we weren't yeah. able to do that then then we're still running around in furs out out in the forest we're not going to yeah, the moon and it's elusive we can lose it too you know just once once we have it doesn't mean that we're going to have it all the time every civilization before ours has lost it <laughs> <laughs> and and so i guess you know uh what i what i'm inferring from this is that what's really necessary is the right kind of narrative is yeah. the right kind of narrative for all of us to tell each other, and maybe that is the solution. What you mentioned earlier, this idea that we're gonna, uh, that we are trending towards an inevitable. I think that we need to get on the space travel part of this way sooner, personally. But uh, the this idea that we are one Terran society or something, just to pick a word, you know, we are all, you know, planet Earth. We're we're human beings. Like we need a we need a 
a narrative yeah. that is more powerful than any other narrative we've ever told ourselves, and therein lies the rub. And the really unfortunate thing is that pretty much everybody that we would normally uh, hope to trust uh, with that task, right? All of the people in our universities who are basically people that we pay, we allow to not really have to do any work at all. We put them in this place, we pay them well, all they have to do is research and teach their ideas to other people. And I mean, they're absolutely doing everything they can to tear us apart, uh, to, to divide us up among, into various yeah. groups instead of to unite us. You look at the media. The media just plays up every internecine conflict they possibly can. Politicians mm-hmm. do the same thing. Everybody that we would normally be hoping would yeah. actually be trying to forge something you know, th- yeah. th- that would bond us together is working actively to pull us apart. Yeah, you'd, you'd think that we're like a week away from Mad Max Fury Road. At any given moment. And but, but the problem is in a, in a mass society with, uh, you know, ubiquitous media and everything like that, um, that can become a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, yeah. that's where that's where it really becomes an issue. This leads me into the other uh, question that I wanted to ask you is that, um, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of great movies, great stories that we've uh, we've told are post-apocalyptic narratives. What does it say about us right now that some post-apocalyptic narratives are some of our most popular and you know money making ever look at how gigantically successful fury road was i mean yes it's an awesome fantastic movie but dead yeah all that stuff we we are deep into post-apocalypse right now i mean is it a kind of like a we're yearning for this almost like we want to go back to this i think there's a lot of ambivalence about it right so on one hand i think there's um i mean there's no question that when you talk to people and i mean maybe you feel it yourself i certainly do like that there is yeah. this sort of excitement that goes along with it right there's um God, yeah uh the uh i remember i was i was uh, reading or i can't i think i was reading it i don't think i was watching it but there was an interview with uh one of uh, a guy who went from belgium to fight for isis and um they asked him like belgium is a like why would you possibly leave belgium to go live in the desert and probably get killed and like all of these yeah. things and uh he they were expecting some exposition on islamic philosophy or something like that and he said three words he said belgium is boring and <laughs> i don't think there's very many people that i know um that don't identify with that to a certain degree i mean even when something happens like you ever live like when you know you're a kid or even as an adult like when the yeah. power goes out in your neighborhood yeah. And you walk outside and you stand on your lawn and other people are out there. And it's the first time yeah. since the last time the power went off that all your neighbors are actually out on their lawn and you start talking to each other. And you haven't talked to them in a year since the last time it went out or something. And there's that sense of exhilaration that something yeah. has disrupted the matrix a little bit. And you there's a party that really loves that. Yeah. Think of all the excitement. I mean, just listen to episode one of Blueprint for Armageddon. You know, uh, think of the excitement of yeah. so many young men going off into World War One, yep. you know. Yep. It is it, it's perverse in a way, but, uh, but I get at the same it, you time, know? yeah, I mean it's perverse, but that uh, des- that desire for a touch of chaos is also our it's human glory. Yeah. I mean that's yeah. everything that we've like the same thing that uh, leads us to want to um, you know the same thing that would cause us to leave Belgium to go fight for ISIS is the same impulse. It's obviously being shaped by radically different yeah. forces, but it's the same impulse that sends us. To the South Pole, up Mount Everest, out into space, all of those yeah. things. You know, mm-hmm. I, I really think it's the same energy, that same drive. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 why I ride a motorcycle as opposed to as opposed to a car. I think you know, I I mean, I on some level recognize that that uh, I, 
riding a motorcycle nowadays is a terrible idea. Terrible, you know? Like th- think of all the armor you have to put on just to be survivable in the event that you're going to that you're going to wreck this thing, but we still do it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, and, um and, I mean MMA is the most popular uh combat sport Today I, I'm I'm wondering when boxing is gonna just turn off the channel just because like we found something now that is like okay we're really gonna channel our I guess we're gonna channel the warrior impulse through this you know and 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 in those sectors of society you could definitely say that yeah we've regained full warrior culture status I, I talked in my update episode recently about uh, the UWM the Unified Weapons Master have you heard of this at all. I might have seen it. I don't know if it was called that. It might have been something else, but go ahead. I, I, I've seen it pop up on Facebook and other and other places, but it's basically like this group in Australia that wants to create an armed fighting league that is analogous to basically UFC, but they're just putting on armor that has electronic sensors and uh, you know you can score how when you're where you're getting hit and how hard with what weapon and that kind of thing. So they're bringing back gladiatorial armed combat and right. and trying to do it map it on put it onto the ufc yeah. mixed martial arts kind of uh kind of model and it's fascinating and i'm i'm gonna be a are part you, of it are if you I familiar can at all with do the, uh, the dog brothers the do- i've heard of them yeah like they're, slightly. they're animals man they're they're legit i've uh i had a couple of buddies who used to go fight with them and they get together in these gatherings yeah. and they what fight. martial art do they do uh it's kind of based around kali they use screamer sticks oh okay Oh, okay. So gotcha, gotcha. they put on face masks and then they they put on face masks. They put on like elbow and knee pads like to protect their joints and they yeah. get after it. I mean, they and it's and it's like MMA. They tackle each other and beat each other down. And they actually uh, they asked Dana White back in the day um, if they could start getting that involved with the UFC and Dana White. They actually have a letter on their website. I think uh, <laughs> Dana White wrote him and he said, yeah, I don't think people are ready for that yet. <laughs> <laughs> but that was that was a long time ago, though. So. I mean, yeah. yeah, you think about something like the UFC. I mean, if we think that watching action movies and horror movies is any it's if it's any different psychologically from watching gladiator combat, we're, we're crazy. It's not like oh, we absolutely. figured out a way. And, and this is actually something that I'm dealing with in my current series. I'm, I'm working with yeah. Daniele um, on uh, he's doing the history of the Spanish conquest of Mexico. And so I'm doing a series of related episodes just to talk about human sacrifice and uh, cannibalism and things like that that kind of go with you know the dance around the story. And by the uh, way, I have to I have to thank you. I was listening to that exact episode on okay. cannibalism at work, and uh, the owner of the company is standing next to me in line <laughs> for the bathroom and asked me what I'm listening to, and I had to cover <laughs> my ass so fast. You're like, so uh, it's just porn. I'm just don't worry about it. It's just porn. I'm totally <laughs> Anything's better than cannibalism. Exactly. And, and I I really think so. You heard that episode, and and yeah. one of the theses of that episode is that I really think that. Um, uh, Coming up with, and this is related to the identity question, because you know if you yeah. can come up with ways that, uh, if you can come up with sto- a story and a symbolic identity that allows people to transcend their little kinship identities and feel like an American and fight side yeah. by side with people who are different race, different uh, family, all that stuff against the evil Japanese or whatever, like that's a tremendous achievement. You've got 300 million people now living together in peace and actually working together on common goals in at least a loose way right that's amazing well like uh it it applies to things other than identity too we used to uh ritually sacrifice people and then eat their flesh now uh people go to church and they worship you know they, they they worship in front of 
a sacrificed man on a can uh, on a uh, on a cross, and then they yep. eat a piece of bread and drink a bit of wine that is explicitly not only supposed to represent his body and blood. The Catholic doctrine is that it transmute into his body and blood. It is his body and blood. So literally, literally, and so you've got human sacrifice and cannibalism, but performed in a symbolic way. And you can you can draw a, a straight line from the old literal practices up to the, you know, rarefied air of the symbolic practices and, and the way that those things develop. And you're able to satisfy whatever it was that drove the primitive to have to eat and headhunt and sacrifice. You're able to, you know, to, to satisfy those same deep psychological, you know, it, scratch those same psychological itches uh, through symbolic means. Well, now you can have a civilization. Now you can actually have a broader civilized society. Exactly. That, that's the thing that blew my mind so much about that episode is that is this concept. I think you call it sublimation. Right. Is the you know the the replacement yeah. Yeah. of these more you know awful practices with something less awful, but really does scratches the same itch. It's kind of like spiritual or uh, mythological methadone in that way. Yeah. The sublimation is a Freudian term, and he he borrowed it um, from chemistry. It means uh, the passage of uh, the transition of a solid into a, a gas without passing through the liquid phase, and so it's that yeah. becoming dry ice. Yeah, like exactly. So becoming a gas, you know, it's it, it is this solid, real thing. It's this chunk of dry ice, right? You can think of that as like actually sacrificing and eating somebody, right? Well, and then it goes into gas, and it's sort of this this etherealized version where now you're, it's not this hard, literal thing. It's this thing that kind of exists in the in the realm of ideas, kind of like how. You know, your blood family, that's a real thing. Like, you know, all social mammals run around with their blood kin and they they act with loyalty toward them. They even act sometimes with compassion. They mourn when they die sometimes. And that's sort of got a certain reality to it. But, yeah. you know, the uh, uh, Christianity or the United States of America or these things, those are just symbols. Those are just symbols. And to the extent that we're all able to identify with those, well, you know, now you can sort of bring people together around something larger. This, this is something I, I – Daniele and I argue about this all the time, actually, because he's really yeah. into, like, the, the tribal stuff, and so am I. I mean, we're all fascinated with that stuff. Uh, but, you know, if you want to – like, it's a choice between one or the other. You're either yeah. going to have uh, a breakdown along local lines or you're going to have a broader, you know, a broader identity that people can participate in. Um, Figuring out a way that, you know, you can sort of tie those two things together and maintain them. I mean, that's the great dream of aristocratic society, you might say, right? The problem with those societies, obviously, is that only a few people get to really play. And, yeah. you know, trying to figure out a way today that, you know, allows people sort of the uh, – allows people to play their own games uh, in, in, in the context of a broader set of uh, rules and social identities is really, I mean, that's that's the big task, right? Like having a broader overarching social identity that doesn't become oppressive and totalitarian and overdetermined. That, yeah. That's that's the task, you know. And it's very yeah. difficult. It's a very difficult line to ride. Absolutely, and that's um, that's where it goes into kind of a area of personal opinion for me is that I think that the United States, at least the framework of the United States, is um, the closest step I think we've taken. To maximizing that, to maximizing that idea of forming a healthy narrative that we can all get behind and all identify with and we can all tell this story about ourselves, but like you said, doesn't become this oppressive, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, 
personally, of, I, I, the, the United States being involved in any kind of colonialist activity just turns my stomach. But you know that that's unfortunately the reality. A lot of the um, uh, the founders, but especially the early uh, Puritans that came over here, um, they were very explicit about about seeing things that way. In fact, they looked at the passage. I mean, they looked at it from a Christian perspective as the way they framed it, obviously. Mm-hmm. But they looked at the passages where you know Jesus is saying that you know I've come to set uh, brother against brother and father against son, and yeah. I am here to call you out from among the nations to become the elect members of this spiritual community. So, in other words, yeah. uh, you know, in the in the founders, they uh, rather the the early Puritans absolutely saw it this way. They said, "We don't care like what your like uh, your blood and soil that you know you came from are. Leave yeah. that behind. And as long as you leave behind the old rivalries, the old." attachments so that you are no longer German. You are no longer Dutch. You are no, and, and it's not that you don't have that in you and, and you don't respect your traditions, but that you are now a part of this community, which is not based on any of that. It's yeah. not based on all of those things that have just sort of, you know, tumbled through history and, and, and spilled out into what we have now. If you want to come over here and be a part of this thing, you can make that choice. You didn't get to choose before. Now you can choose. And yeah. then, and, and it, I mean, nobody, it's the first time that outside of like some little cult or something like that, that any nation has ever been founded on anything like that. And it's really an amazing accomplishment. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and uh, uh, yeah, I think that I think that we can all agree that uh, America is a nice big it's a big ship. And uh, yeah, we don't want to burn down the ship. We should, you know, maybe look at who's out the uh, who's at the helm of that. Uh, but uh, hey. Uh, we're coming kind of to the end of this. Sure. Uh, I, I could I could talk with you for hours, man. Yeah, we'll do uh, thank it again. you so much. Yeah, we'll thank you so again. much for doing this. And um, I just kind of have one last question for you: sure. Is that uh, what's kind of as far as all the warrior cultures? We we mentioned a few of them. Uh, what's the one that fascinates you the most? On like kind of just this you know uh, this visceral inquisitive level? Yeah, I, you know I'm kind of uh, I'm, I'm one of those people who tends to get completely obsessed with whatever it is that I'm that I'm absorbed in at the moment. So I, I would Likewise, say yeah. it's been, it, uh, it's been the samurai Japanese for a long time uh, and, mm-hmm. and the native Americans to, to a slightly lesser degree. But right now I'm obsessed with the Aztecs. Yeah. I mean, the Aztecs, we didn't even get into that. And we can, you know, Danielle and I are going to be doing this series for another couple months. So maybe we can chat about it before it's over. But, Absolutely. And um, uh, listeners, please, if you're listening to this right now, again, go and check and see if the, those episodes are out, listen to them and then come back. Yeah. I mean, the, the Aztecs were, you know, they, they weren't as advanced as somebody like the Japanese, obviously, but as far as their social, uh, more, I mean, they were, they had, they were very civilized people. They weren't technologically oh, yes. advanced, but incredibly civilized as far as their, their they manners. Had politics and, and, and. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the way that they behaved, I mean, very mannered, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, in a way that you could actually compare with the Japanese, like, and the Japanese are famous for it as far as their manners and mm-hmm. stuff. And yet the Aztecs are absolutely bananas as far as their, uh, you know, not just the human sacrifice and cannibalism, all these things, but the way that they, uh, their entire existence was centered around war. Um, every baby, when it was born, it comes out of the womb and it's, it's blessing is may you one day die in battle or on the sacrificial stone. Um, mothers who die in birth, who, who die giving birth are given a warrior's burial. Um, merchants huh. who uh, were going to go on a trip off trading somewhere were formed up as a war party and they were going out to 
you know, take spoils from, you know, the enemy and stuff. And when they came back, they were greeted as, you know, victorious uh, conquerors who conquered, you know, the, the goods, basically, and brought them back. Oh, wow. If that isn't a parallel to reading uh, The Art of War in business, I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah, and the extent – I mean, even uh, the, the social status – was almost entirely determined by how many captives you had brought back from war for sacrifice. Like you yeah. could be born at the bottom of the totem pole and rise up, you know, high in your society just by bringing back captives from war. That was it. It wasn't like, <laughs> you know, uh, and absolutely centered around war in a way that is uh, hard for me to even wrap my head around, to be honest with you. But it's they're absolutely fascinating. I highly recommend Daniele's History on Fire uh, series on it because he's really getting into it. So. Likewise, it is it is like nothing I've ever heard. Honestly, I'm I, I'm in the middle of his. I listened to that, then I went back, and then I'm in the middle of his uh, Teddy Roosevelt stuff, and it's just like I, I'm falling in love with Teddy Roosevelt yeah, all over he, again. He's the best for that kind of stuff. I mean, that's his obsession. You know, is is I mean, Danielli's basically a civilized barbarian. I mean, he's somebody who just <laughs> he wasn't fully uh, socialized as a kid, so he can totally get on. He can totally survive yeah. in society and act like a normal person but just beneath the surface like Danielli is uh, he's just a complete savage <laughs> I, I'd love to meet him one of these days yeah come down to uh, LA sometime <laughs> I, can't, I can't wait to I can't wait to I'm up here in Seattle but uh, I'm going to get the first chance I get um, uh, have you got anything that you would like to plug before we kind of wrap up here no nah, no, I'm not really into that part of it so. excellent well um, ladies and gentlemen please check out the, the Martyr Made podcast Martyr Made is one word um, uh, wherever you can get your, uh, podcasts, it is required listening. If you listen to this, uh, podcast at all, and, uh, I live in their shadow. Um, <laughs> uh, I live in the shadow of, uh, the Martyr Made podcast, Daniele Bellelli, uh, History on Fire podcast, and of course, uh, Hardcore History, the, or the Holy Trinity, as I like to call them. Um, Anyway, uh, a couple of real quick announcements. Uh, you can check, you can see me if you are in the Midwest in Minnesota uh, at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival uh, every weekend, August 19th through October 1st. Uh, you can either find me hurling insults from you up at the castle wall or um, fighting with my grossest messer in the street as my uh, uh, outlandish Lundsknecht character, uh, my German mercenary character. Uh, um, you, please check out, also if you're in Minnesota, check out True Stone Coffee, uh, some fantastic uh, coffee roasters, local, uh, um, fair trade, all that jazz. Um, and uh, please check out uh, Hot Chocolate Media's other shows, uh, Fang and Talon, uh, Super Academy, if you're into the visual web media, and or the Movie Machine podcast, where you uh, can listen to people improvise a movie and pitch it to you uh, in real time. Uh, so please check those out. Uh, Daryl Cooper, thank you so much again. I cannot, I cannot thank you enough. This is, uh, I think, arguably the the best episode I've done so far. So thank you so much yeah, for it was that. A lot of fun for me too. Cool, cool. I, I, I can't wait to talk to you again, man. And uh, please, uh, best of luck in Martyr Maid and any other thing you're involved in. All right. Thanks, brother. Thank you, man. Bye. Take care. Yep. Thanks for listening. Now go forth and conquer.